If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. It's in the New Testament. If you don't know where Hebrews is, just look it up in the table of contents. It's a big book, and we've been in this journey for quite some time now. Today is our second look at verses 14 through 17 in chapter 12, where it's talking about two really wonderful experiences that the Lord Jesus wants each of his followers, each, each person who's a believer in him, to experience. And those two, two experiences are um, peace and holiness. And I mentioned last time, I think, that I, I suspect that if you ask pretty much anybody if they would like to experience peace or more peace in their life, they would say, yeah, sure. Holiness, yeah, maybe, depends on what it is, right? So we're going to talk about that. Let's go ahead and read verses 12 through, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 17, and then take some time and think our way through it. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. So, two big ideas here when it comes to experiencing peace and holiness. Those two ideas are that peace and holiness are not passive and they are not private. We know they're not passive because we're told uh, to strive for peace and holiness. So, peace, peace and holiness don't just happen to you. You've got to go after it. To strive after mean, or strive for it, that's to pursue, to chase down, to hunt, to go after. And they're not private experiences either. Now that's obvious here uh, of pursuing peace. It says strive for peace with everyone. So the relational aspect of peace there is obvious. So you've got to go after peace in partnership with others who are also going after peace. Well, we're going to see that that's also true of holiness. Last time we focused mainly on the pursuit of peace. This time we're going to focus mainly on the pursuit of holiness. And I think there are three questions that need to be answered. Three questions I want to try to answer. What is holiness? Why do we have to pursue it, and how do we pursue it? Those are the three questions I want to try to answer from this passage. Okay, so what what is holiness? The word holy means set apart, distinct, different, special, unique. It is the opposite of common ordinary, uh, everyday. 
so you've got basically these two categories. You've got the everyday, typical, ordinary stuff, and then there's the holy stuff, which is special, unique, set apart. When Scripture talks about the holiness of God, and it has a lot to say about God's holiness, uh, I don't have it for you here, but many of you will remember Isaiah chapter 6, where uh, Isaiah gets a vision of this throne room of God and these angels saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Um, <clears throat> when, it's, when Scripture's talking about God's holiness, it is His uniqueness, His one-of-a-kindness that it is emphasizing. Uh, because there is no one like Him. So Isaiah... 40.25, the Lord says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One of Israel. At some point, any attempt to compare God to anybody else is going to break down. Because he's God. And no one else is. He's one of a kind. First so, uh, Samuel chapter 2 there is none holy like the Lord for or because there is none besides you, O Lord. Revelation 15.4 Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. You alone are God. You are in a class all by yourself, God. You are creator. We are creation. You are infinite. Have no limits. We are finite. We have all kinds of limits. Uh, you, Lord, are all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-good. We're not any of those things. So God is holy because of who He is. He's God. He's utterly unique. You could say holiness comes naturally to Him. Okay, so then what does holiness mean for us? Because clearly we're not God. We are not in a class all by ourselves. Uh, what is it talking about when it refers to us being holy? Well, we become holy in relationship to this God. That is, we become different when we belong to the God who is different. So when we become connected to Jesus by faith. Olivia mentioned that. It's our church purpose to connect people to the God who made them, friends who helped them, world that needs them. When we become connected to the God who made us through faith in Jesus, something radical happens. Actually, several radical things happen. But without Jesus, the Bible describes us as strangers to God, as outsiders, dead to God, even enemies of God. But when we become united to Jesus, that all changes. That all changes. 1 Peter 2, look at it. But you, and he's writing to believers in Jesus, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy, set-apart nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the emphasis there on our uniqueness? So, a chosen people, a holy nation, uh, God's special possession, the people of God, distinctness. That is holiness. So, belonging to God, to the one true God through faith in Jesus, gives you a new identity that you didn't have before. You get a completely new identity when you put your faith in Jesus. You become connected to the one true God. Okay, so then pursuing holiness means to live out that new identity. To live out the difference that it makes. To no longer be like everybody else who doesn't know God, doesn't know Jesus, but to be different. So you're connected to the God who is holy, therefore live a holy life. That's what it says in uh, 1 Peter 1.14. Look at it. As obedient children. Well, wait a minute. Not all of us are children. Well, it's talking here about being children of God, the new identity. Okay? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, when you were just you know, part of the crowd that didn't know God. But just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Do you see here the reason for pursuing holiness, for being holy? It's the relationship. So as obedient children, that is, be holy because you are. God's children. You have a new identity. So don't live out the old desires that were just part of your old identity. Live out the new identity that Jesus has given you as a child of God. Be holy because He is. Or you could say it this way. Live in such a way that people see a family resemblance between you and your Father in heaven. Live in such a way that people can see a family resemblance. Now, I'm sure you have met people, families for whom, you know, there's this obvious family resemblance between children and their parents. You know, yeah, he's got his, he's got his father's nose. Poor kid. She, she's got her mother's eyes. Yeah, I think he's got his father's temper. His family resemblance. I have a story to tell you about that. When I was in my early 20s, I had a friend uh, at church who worked in a store that my father uh, would sometimes go to. And the first time my friend encountered my father, she'd never met him before, she'd never seen him with me, he goes to this store, she sees him, she looks at him, and she asks this question. She said, are you Scott Roberson's father? What could he do? He had to admit it, you know. It's so he, he said, yes, he was. And then he asked her, well, what made you think so? And she said, he looks just like you. Now, here is what is so interesting about that. Here's what's so interesting about that. I was adopted at birth. 
And my dad is not my biological father. And yet somehow, just being raised by him, growing up with him, being around him, admiring him, I learned to resemble him. That's the idea of pursuing holiness. It's learning to resemble our Heavenly Father. And if you say, well, wait a minute. Okay, and it's not, it's not talking about, you know, His divineness. It's talking about His character. But you say, how can I resemble somebody I can't even see? Oh, but you can. You can see Him. That's what we learned way back in the beginning of this book. Chapter 1. You can see God by looking at Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Look at Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. You see the connection there? Be imitator of God. That is, be like Jesus, who is the invisible God made visible. Be as loving as Jesus. Be as kind as Jesus. Be as courageous as Jesus. Be as good as Jesus. That's what we're pursuing when we pursue holiness. That's what we're pursuing. That Christ-like character. Okay, second question. All right, well, why do we have to pursue it? Why do we have to pursue it? Now, verse 14 says something very serious. It says we have to have holiness or we will not see the Lord. That's very serious because that means our eternal joy or eternal misery hangs on this issue, whether or not we're holy. But why do we have to pursue it? Doesn't Jesus make us holy? Doesn't He make us completely right with God when we put our trust in Him, when we cross the line from unbelief to belief? When we become united to Him? Because back in chapter 4, verse 16, it says this. We were told that because of what Jesus, our great high priest, has done by His once-for-all sacrifice, we're told this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Whose throne is that? That's God's throne, the holy God. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, if we can approach God's throne with confidence, doesn't that mean Jesus has already made us holy? Are you, do you feel the tension? you feel the question here? Is holiness something, as a believer in Jesus, we already have? Or is it something we have to pursue? Yes. Yes, both. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be clever or witty. I'm trying to explain what the Bible itself teaches, what God's Word says. Look, Jesus making us holy. Okay, Jesus makes us holy. Him making us holy is both a past event and an ongoing process.
process. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. You will see it. And if you don't like grammar, you don't like talking about verbs and verb tense, I'm sorry, but it really matters here. It really matters. Look at this. There are two verbs here, and we need to pay attention to the tense, tenses of these verbs. For by one sacrifice, here comes the first verb, he has made perfect forever those who are, second verb, being made holy. Isn't that interesting? Two verbs. The first, made perfect, that's a finished action. That's done. Second verb, being made holy, that's an unfinished action. That's still going on. So in both cases, Jesus is the one who makes us holy. We don't do it. He does. But His first work, His work of making us perfect for all time, is done. It's done. His second work, His work of making us holy, is still in process. (laughs) And if you've been a believer for more than five minutes, you already know that. You don't look at yourself and say, oh, great, I'm there. All the holiness I need, it's right here, baby, check it out. Uh, No, no. Ongoing. Okay, how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? That there's a work of holiness that's finished, and there's a work of holiness that's still ongoing. Okay, the first work, the finished work, is Jesus changing our status. And don't hear that and think, oh, well, you yeah, know, that's not really like a real thing. Yes, it is, and it's huge. It's huge. Jesus changing our status from condemned to forgiven, from lost to found, from dead to alive, from unacceptable to accepted, from outsider to child of God. It's huge. He has changed our identity. If you're a believer in Jesus, He's done that for you. And that reality is accomplished when He unites us to Himself through faith. So Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified, completed action, justified, made right with God, Through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's finished. So going back to my adoption for a second. said I was adopted at birth. And, you know, there's all this paperwork that you've got to fill out. And uh, birth family did it. Adopted family did it. And at some point, some judge or somebody with the legal authority signed off on it. We're done. My identity changed. I went from belonging to this family to belonging to this family. And that change was real, regardless of how little I understood it or whether or not I felt anything. It just happened. It happened. They made it happen. Now here, then there's the ongoing work of being made holy And this is talking about Jesus changing us experientially 
from the inside out so that we resemble him more and more. As kind, as loving, as good, courageous, and all those things. So we become more and more like him in our character. Now here's why this matters so much. This is why you have to understand these two different works of holiness. Because it is that ongoing work of being made holy that confirms that that initial work of being made perfect for all time actually happened. See, what if I told you, oh yeah, I was adopted at birth by, uh, by Ron and Dixie Roberson. And you said, oh, well, what were they like? What was it like growing up in their homes? Like, I don't know. I, I didn't grow up in their home. Uh, they didn't raise me. In fact, I, I never even met them. And at that point, when you go, uh, dude, I don't think that adoption really happened. See, this is why we have to pursue holiness, because it is that ongoing work of being made holy in relationship to Jesus Every day, to become more and more like Him, it is by pursuing holiness that we can have the confidence that Jesus has forgiven our sins, made us right with God, and perfected us by His one sacrifice for all time. They go together. So don't ever settle. Don't ever settle for a faith that's got a past tense experience without present tense evidence it doesn't matter what that past tense experience was whether you prayed a certain prayer or whether you uh, went forward when a preacher gave an altar call and invited you to come down and pray or or uh, you got baptized or you took first communion or you were confirmed or whatever whatever the past experience was True faith begins with a past experience. And for some of you, that's when you were a little child, and you say, well, I don't really remember when it happened. That, that's okay. It doesn't matter if you can remember it. Because here's the point. If that past tense experience was real, then it will continue to shape your life with an ongoing process of being made holy in relationship to Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, Straight line, all success, no, no failures. No, it's, it, can be, it can be interesting. But there's present tense evidence of this past tense experience. By one sacrifice, listen to it, he has made perfect forever who? Who? Those who are being made holy, present tense. So third question, how do we pursue holiness? Well, we've been talking around it already, and this book has already given us the answer again and again. It's by faith. It's by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So it's by faith. Okay, well, how does, what does that mean? 
What does that mean to pursue holiness by faith? What are we talking about? Okay, we already know it's not passive because it has to be pursued, right? You know, in other words, we cannot just live our lives like everybody else who doesn't know the Lord and just expect holiness to happen. It doesn't work like that. That's why we have to strive after it. You can't just hope holy. You know, that would be like a hunter during elk season just staying home and hoping an elk wanders through his front yard and knocks on his front door so he can shoot it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. So it's not passive. It's active. Okay, here's the two words I want you to hang on to. Actively relying on Jesus. Actively relying on Jesus. Active, not passive. And not relying on self, but relying on Jesus. So it's active because it involves things you do. You. You learn His Word. You read it. You study it. You obey His commands. You ask Him. You talk to Him. You you ask Him for His help. You worship Him. You seek to know Him better and trust Him more. So it is active. And then it's relying on Him. It's easy for Christians to fall off the balance beam here because it's like we get preoccupied with how hard we're trying, how hard we're working, how well we're doing, how much, and that's a performance mentality. Yeah, I just said it was active, but it's an active reliance on Jesus. Lord, help me. I see what you want me to do, so I want to do it, but I can't do it in my own strength. I need your promises to to encourage me. I need what you alone can give me. So Jesus told us this in John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do you rely on him? How do you actively rely on him? Well, I've been talking about it. You follow his direct. This is the simplest way I know how to say it. If I say, read your Bible and pray, you'll all roll your eyes. That's what everybody says. Let me say it differently. Let me say it differently. You follow his directions and you ask for his help. You follow his directions and you ask for his help. You learn from his word what he wants you to do. You ask him for his help to do it and then you do it. And there are a lot of things Jesus wants us to do. We're going to be seeing a number of them as we wind up our study in Hebrews. The last uh, verses of it are filled with different things we need to do. Jesus said this in Matthew 28. You may be familiar with the command, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So there's a lot he wants us to do, but we do it in reliance on him. Now, I want to talk about, for just a couple of minutes, one of his instructions that I think frequently gets overlooked, especially by American Christians. It is partnering 
with his people. Do you ever wonder why Jesus wants us to be in churches? Yeah, churches can be so weird. And there's no, there's no perfect one out there. I love what Rick Warren says. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. It, it, it's, it doesn't exist. Why does he want us to be in church? And I'm not talking about being in the building. I'm talking about being in relationship with others who also believe in Jesus. Why does he want that? Because he gives us brothers and sisters in Christ to help us. See, that's part of relying on him. Now, think this through. Because, you know, we sing songs sometimes and people do this slogan. They say, all I need is Jesus. All I need is Jesus. And I know what they mean by that. At least I hope I know what they mean. It's like everything we need is in Jesus and he provides it. But you don't just need Jesus. You need oxygen. You need food. You need water. And you know what else you need? You need relationships with other Christians. You need them. That's a resource he provides. And so that's one way we rely on Jesus by saying, okay, Lord, I'll follow your direction here. Remember I said that pursuing holiness isn't passive and it isn't private? Well, this is the not private part. A big part of us relying on him (laughs) is partnering with them. It's a big part of it. Now you can see that. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, in this passage, I get it in verses 15 and 16. Check it out. See to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So see, right after he tells us to pursue holiness, we are told to watch out for things that would derail our pursuit of holiness. Okay, so look carefully. Who's supposed to do this? Who's supposed to see to it that our pursuit of holiness doesn't get derailed? Who's supposed to watch out for these things? You are. I am. We all are. He's talking to all of us. See to it. And then who are we watching out to protect? You. Me. All of us. He's talking to all of us. This means that holiness, the pursuit of holiness, is a community project. It's not an individual pursuit. Because part of pursuing holiness is helping each other avoid temptations that would derail that pursuit. And he gives us three temptations here in particular to watch out for. I don't have time to go over them in detail, but I'll tell you what I think each one of them is. And then you can think about it. But the key thing to keep in mind is that these are temptations we have to help each other watch out for. Why? Well, apparently, we're really prone to these. Or these are especially deceptive and tend to fool us. So we need somebody to say, whoa, wait a minute. So here they are. We need somebody to watch our back for these three temptations. Number one, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I think this is the temptation of self righteousness self-righteousness that is relying on yourself and how hard you try to be good to be good enough for God like you can do it if you just try hard enough 
okay? It says, make sure nobody fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, that can't mean you fail to earn it or you fail to deserve it or you fail to achieve it because grace by definition is not earned, it's not uh, deserved, and it's not achieved. It's a gift. It's a gift that God freely gives us. The death and resurrection of Jesus obtained for us the free gift of being right with God. And he offers it to us freely. And then Jesus offers us freely his guidance, his direction, his power. That means that failing to obtain the grace of God can only mean one thing. Refusing to receive it. That's what it means to fail to obtain God's grace. You refuse to receive it. Why would anybody do that? Because of the default setting of the human heart. Because of the love we have for our own glory. The love we have of our own achievement. That we did this by the strength of my hands, by my willpower, by my... Instead of saying, God, I can't do it without you. I need you. Self-righteousness. Trying to be good enough by your own efforts. And see, Christians, people who come to know Jesus fall into this trap all the time. I know I have. And you get all preoccupied with your performance and how well you're performing or how terrible you're not performing. And you just get all, you either get arrogant or you get depressed. And we, n- neither of those are good alternatives. We want to just rely on Jesus more. Trust him more. That's the issue. Trust him more. Second temptation. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. This could be several things. Uh, There's a passage in the Old Testament where it's talking about uh, in the people of Israel, they're going to be people who reject God and they don't follow his rules and and they become like a a root that spreads. Uh, I think this could well be the temptation of self-pity. I think bitterness comes from self-pity. What do I mean? I mean thinking that you deserve better than you're getting thinking you deserve better than you're getting from people thinking you deserve better than you're getting from your job thinking you deserve better than you're getting from God and instead of taking those feelings of disappointment to him and leaving them with him we just sort of cherish them and they grow they go unchallenged they take root and the problem with bitterness is it spreads it spreads. So you, you, know, you find somebody who's sympathetic to share your feelings with of how you've not gotten what you deserve. You've not been treated as well as you deserve. And then your friend goes, oh, yeah, you're so right. That's just so wrong. Yeah, you deserve better. And by golly, who's responsible for this? And people, when we wallow in self-pity... we tend to infect others with our negative attitude. I've seen it. Maybe you have. I can remember going home, walking in the house, and I got a bad attitude. And I walk in the front door, my wife and my kids have a great attitude. But not for long. (laughs) And my bad attitude spreads. They do. And so we need help with this. We need to watch each other's back. Watch out for that complaining, ungrateful attitude. Because you know what? If we got what we deserved, you don't want it. You don't want what you deserve. I don't either. 
I want grace. I want God giving me what I don't deserve. Third, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright. This incredible blessing that God had promised and was going to, you know, it's going to travel down through this family. He sold it for a meal. A bowl of food. So this is the temptation of self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. When it comes to sex or eating or some other fulfilling of our appetites, and what we do is we think, man, you know, God, these rules, they're so out of date. They're so out of date. I'll be much happier if I just indulge my appetites instead of saying no to them, self-control. And, and this is everywhere, folks. It's everywhere. And we are so prone to this. We're so prone to this. I mean, what, what, is, what is the slogan that our world loves? You see it in all the Disney movies. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Indulge your desires and you'll be happy. No, you won't. Not eternally. God's plan is better. So what I think this means is I think this means every man needs brothers and every woman needs sisters in Christ who, and we help each other, we watch each other's back. And when we see each other start to head the direction of self-indulgence, say, whoa, 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 that's not the way to happiness, that's not the way to joy. Now, this is not a license to be the morality police. Okay, well, we're running around, you know. <laughs> no, this is, this is helping each other not get fooled and go down the path of destruction. We do this in love, not because we enjoy confronting people. You know people who love to confront people? It's, that's not good. We want to help each other pursue holiness. How do we do that? By reminding each other, how much greater God's promises are. See, every time sin tempts us, it's, it's promising us something. Oh, you'll be happier. You'll be happier if you distrust God. You'll be happier if you don't obey God. You'll be happier if you go this way. And it's a lie. And sometimes we're just stupid. And we need somebody to just, you know, figuratively slap our faces and say, no, 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 no. God's promises are so much better. I know you're hurting now. I know it's so miserable now. I know it's awful. But God has promised that he is going to work this out for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. His promises in Jesus are better than all of the world's promises put together. So two questions as we end for you and for me to think about. Number one, are you personally pursuing holiness are you personally striving to grow in your relationship with jesus to resemble him more and more do you see the intentional pursuit of holiness as a non-negotiable part of being a believer in jesus it's non-negotiable we have to pursue holiness and two are you pursuing holiness in partnership with others who are also pursuing holiness. Because we need that. Are there others in your life who know you well enough and who have permission to ask you difficult questions? Are there people in your life? Do you have those people 
who, if you were going to fall into one of these temptations, would love you enough and know you well enough to say, hey, man, I, I see a problem, and I don't want you to get hurt. That's what we need. Pursue holiness and pursue it in partnership. Think about that. You say, well, I don't know what to do about that. Well, building partnerships can be tough. But that's why we have things like small groups. You know, if you're not in a small group, you could uh, write on your Connect card that you're interested, and Tyler will get in contact with you. But we, just ha- we have to pursue holiness, and we have to do it together. And here's the thing. God wants you to succeed at this. You know, he's not trying to make it harder just because, you know, he likes it to be hard. He wants you to succeed. He wants me to succeed. Oh, the grace is there. We just need to rely on it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for the confidence that we can have that you perfect for all time those who trust you, those who rely on you, those who are being made holy by Jesus. Thank you. Father, will you, will you help us? Uh, we all struggle with this. It's hard to be open and honest with others. It's hard to uh, do all the things you command when doing the way the world does it is so much easier and we're tempted to think better. Lord, free us from those delusions and help us go hard after the holiness you want us to have. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.